Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply at LifeMD.com. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications through LifeMD? LifeMD is now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. You just take your shot. It doesn't feel like you're on a diet. What I wasn't expecting it to do was to shut off the food noise. This was life-altering, and if I can do it, I feel like anybody can do it. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at TryLifeMD.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hey, everybody. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Welcome to Beekeeping for Newbies. As always, I do appreciate you being here. Thank you for taking the time to listen. Uh, reach out, Jeff, at beekeepingfornewbies.com or more on the bees at protonmail.com for those of you more security-minded folks. So we are picking up where we left off here. This is going to be Bee Buzz Episode 8. This is just a follow-on to some Q&A from, uh, from the last few months of me not doing my job of keeping up with the podcast here. So I apologize there. And let's see here. We just left off with uh, talking about brood and making new queens from that brood and making sure we had young larvae. So we're going to roll that right into the question of, I lost my queen. And this happens all the time. I mean, I, th- I feel like this is probably the number one topic that I get emailed about. They're, you know, cause I have, I have a lot of people who listen and I really appreciate it. It's a lot of fun. I get to feel like I'm a part of your experience and it's really fun. So people email and they're like, Hey man, this is what's going on. And I'm seeing this and I'm, I'm seeing that and this is here and that's not there. And my bees swarmed and there's mites and there's wax moths. So I get to hear all the fun drama that's going on all over the country. And it's, it's a lot of fun, but without a doubt, the, I lost my queen thing happens all the time. It's, it's really tough when you start in the spring and you're trying to establish what is normal, right? What does normal look like for my colony? Because I tell people all the time, like, you know, when you're doing your inspections and things, it's not so much about looking for things. You know, I mean, yeah, there's certain things you want to see. You want to find your queen. You want to find eggs. You want to find, you know, larvae, capped brood. You know, you want to find um, honey stores and, you know, you're looking for the presence or absence of, you know, hive beetles and different things that might be problematic. You want to see if they're drawing up comb. There's lots of things that you're looking for, but 
as far as bad things go or things that are detrimental to the colony, it's more, in my opinion, it's more a situation of knowing what normal looks like so that it's really, really easy to figure out when something is abnormal. So you get your bees in the spring, and it's very normal that every time you open up the hive, your colony has tons of eggs and larvae, you know, varying stages of development for your, your workers. And, that, and that's, what, that's what you expect. You become used to seeing that. And then like in my area and a lot of others in the country, or in the world for that matter, you have that dearth where there's, there's no more nectar coming in, right? So you have to have protein and in pollen, carbs being you know, the nectar and, and, or in sugar syrup in the case of your supplemental feeding. But you have to have those two things in order for the conditions to be right to, uh, to develop young brood, to, you know, for the queen to lay eggs and for the worker bees and the nurse bees to, to raise and care for those new bees. So when those conditions are absent the queen's laying can reduce significantly. It can kind of come to a screeching halt, really. And then it gets really scary for the beekeeper who hasn't seen that before or even an experienced beekeeper sometime. You're, maybe you're in year three, four, five, and you're looking and you're like, oh, crap, I know she's got to be here. Like, where is she? And there's just nothing that you can see. You can see no evidence. This, this is tough and it's tricky Stay calm. Try to be cool. A, a good example, you know, somebody the other day had emailed and said, yeah, I lost my queen. They went to a different state, got a queen. They drove there, picked up a queen, brought it back, put it into the colony. And that queen is not in that colony anymore, yet there is plenty of eggs and larvae and new workers being developed. Because the original queen was probably still there hiding out somewhere and... This other queen showed up and they, they weren't having it and they probably took her out. So be patient. When you think the queen is gone, take your time and really, really look around. If you look at the statistical probability of you killing the queen by moving frames and, and moving things around, it's it's relatively low. You know, I, I know it happens to people, but just try to stay calm. One thing that a lot of beekeepers will do is as they start their inspections, if they find the queen... They'll go ahead and pull her out, put her in a queen cage, and just kind of set her off to the side on maybe an area of frames that you're not inspecting uh, or, you know, somewhere else that where she's safe but not in the kind of line of movement between these frames that are coming in and out. I usually don't do that, but that's just my preference. It works for me. I haven't had issues with crushing queens, but I'm very, very careful. When I pull, a, you know, a frame out and I have the queen on that frame, I don't set that on the ground. And that's another mistake that I think people have made before where they just kind of set it on the ground, they keep doing their thing. I really try to avoid putting uh, frames on the ground primarily because things will stick to them. So if you have pine needles and leaves and any other thing that's around dead grass, it sticks to the frame, it gets kind of gross. So if you use those hangers, those frame hangers that hook onto the side of the hive body, those are fine. I usually keep uh, a deep... Uh, just a bottom board or even just a piece of cardboard or plywood, whatever's laying around, I'll throw a deep onto that next to the colonies where I'm inspecting so I can pull a frame out, drop it in there temporarily, and then continue my inspection. And then usually I only take out one or two. From there, I just kind of slide the frames over a little bit. But if you think you've lost your queen, really, really do a detailed inspection. If you have a friend or a more experienced beekeeper bring them in. In my case, I would just use one of my daughters. Like my oldest daughter, Leah, was great at finding queens. 
um, Phoebe really good at finding queens, right? I can give them a frame and they can usually find them a lot faster than them. That's probably because I'm color challenged, uh, red, green color deficiency. So a quick side note, when I joined the army years ago, I was like, Hey, I want to fly helicopters. And they said, Oh my God, with your scores, you can do whatever you want in the army. And I was like, Hey, hooray, I'm going to fly helicopters. And then they were like, Oh, you have a red, green color deficiency, uh, communications or admin specialist. So anyway, the girls are really good at finding, my girls are really good at finding queens. I'm not as good as they are. Find a friend if you have one available and, and ask them if they can help you out. If you still can't find your queen, you can do with you know a shaker box. And I've mentioned this before, but I'll go ahead and mention it again in case you're new or you don't remember. You take a queen excluder and you put it on the bottom of a deep. And I have one that's just, it's already tacked in place. I've already stapled it to the bottom of a deep. So it's just around whenever I need it. And what you'll do is you'll basically pull the frames out. So you're starting with a mostly empty deep. And then you shake the bees into the uh, shaker box and then put the frames back in the colony. And what will happen is the bees will start moving down back into the colony. And whatever's left behind is going to be drones or the queen because neither of them will fit through the queen excluder. So if you do the shaker box trick with every frame in that colony, you should find your queen if you are, in fact, queen right. If not, then, you know, something may have happened. I mean, in general, queens don't, they don't just leave. They don't just wake up one day and be like, I think I'm going to leave the colony. You know, the colony doesn't usually just turn on her and be like, hey, I don't like your pheromone anymore. Let's kill you. You know, there will over time, you know, as her ability to produce and lay more eggs diminishes, yeah, they will try to supersede her. But most of the people that are seeing this problem and most of my experience with this problem is in those people are like years one through three of beekeeping. So it's a very common thing. You're not, you're not alone. You know, just try to ha- try to take it slow. Don't get, don't get too nervous too quick and uh, see if you can figure that out with the, the shaker box or, or having a friend. Okay. I don't have a lot to report on this one. But uh, this is a note from Mary in Michigan. She sent me a link to someone else's podcast who was talking about feeding honeybees bananas. Kind of like, oh, hey, you know, if you don't have any other feed, if there's nothing else, nothing else available for them, you can give them bananas. And I heard that, and it was cool. And Mary, I appreciate you sending that to me. That was kind of a cool, uh, cool concept. But I guess this, this gal in the podcast had done a lot of research on this. And apparently there's this this saying or this old adage like, hey, you don't eat bananas in the bee yard because, you know, when they have, um, when, they, when their attack pheromones kick in, it kind of smells like bananas. I don't know. I'm, 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 maybe I'm challenged in that area as well. I don't remember smelling bananas when they get angry at me, but I don't really know. Maybe that's the case. But in any, either way, yeah, this gal had done you know, a little bit of basic research and discovered that you know, in the absence of other preferred things, that honeybees will eat bananas. Uh, apparently, you know, it's very nutrient rich, and there's a lot of benefit to it. Me personally, I'm not gonna, you know, I'm not gonna start feeding my bees bananas. But apparently, this it wasn't like you take a ripe banana and give it to the bees. But these were like the older bananas that were kind of like banana bread territory, right? Where you know you can't do anything with them other than make banana bread. Uh, she was saying, don't put them outside the colony because they won't eat them. You have to actually put them inside the hive somewhere. So I thought that was kind of interesting. If, you know, if you're bored, um, do a little research on that and see what you can come up with. Maybe it's, maybe I'll go down there and eat a banana in front of the, uh, oh, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to do that. Hold on. 
So I'm going to make a note here on my phone. I have a list for next time I go to the apiary on some videos. So I'm going to add this one in right now. I'll do a video of me eating a banana with the bees. So we'll see if they get angry on that one. Okay, got that added to the list here. All right. So so here's one of my favorite questions. It was from one person in particular. Why do my bees hate me? And so I get it. I, I definitely get it. Just look at it on the most basic of levels. Uh, sorry, I just it's just funny to me. You have a colony of bees, right? They, they do their thing. They make wax cells. They lay eggs. They have workers. They build a home. They store nectar. They make honey. They are like any other living thing. They have their space, their domain, their home, and they don't want intruders. It's kind of like your house. Like if I just show up at your house and you're hanging out having dinner with your family and I just bust in the front door and I'm like, hey, what's up? No, no, don't worry. I'm not going to hurt you. I'm just here to check things out. You know, you're probably not going to be really excited about my presence there. So, you know, like it's kind of like I walk in and I'm like, oh, you don't like me here? Well, let me just spray a bunch of smoke. Maybe that'll calm you down. You know, what you're doing is a little bit, you know, disruptive to their life. And uh, particularly at this time of year, this is a time of year where in many places, you know, if you have bears in the area, you know, they're looking to pack on those last few pounds before they hibernate for the winter. And uh, other things are trying to rob to get their last little bit of food that they can store away to help them make it through the winter. So the bees can be a little bit more edgy, particularly at this time of year. But in general, at any time, just look at it from their perspective, right? Someone's busting into their house and trying to disrupt things. Uh, They don't hate you. I wouldn't say that they like you or love you. They tolerate you. They're just doing their thing and just being protected. But I, I, I love the way the email came in. Like, why do my bees hate me? Okay, uh, some changes. I think someone had asked me, like, hey, you know, what kind of changes and things could I expect to see, you know, late summer, early fall? So uh, the first one I would say is definitely um, I recommend not wearing dark colors. Like the other day I was at the apiary and there was a lot of tall grass uh, around the colonies. And I just kind of went up to him and just was grabbing it and throwing it off to the side. And, and normally this isn't a big deal. I wasn't even thinking about it. I was like, oh, let me just jump inside the electric fence there and grab uh, grab some of that tall grass. And uh, thank God I didn't get stung, but I'm wearing a black T-shirt, black shorts. I don't even know why. I was what an idiot. But I had a couple of them like just bounce off my forehead, like right. I mean, if they would have stung me like right between the eyes, I have a picture of that somewhere. It's great when that happens. But uh, the couple of them bounced off my head, and I was thinking like, oh crap, what am I doing? I'm wearing all black, and it's fall here. So you're gonna. I would expect a little bit of a change in temperament at this time of year. Like I mentioned a few minutes ago, they're getting a little bit more protective, and they're trying to you know sock away everything they can. They're watching out for for predators and other you know, other types of uh, insects that may want to take what they have. Uh, robbing can be more prevalent this time of year. You know, I would say where I am, you know, the ragweed is kind of dropping off. So um, I haven't seen a lot of goldenrod where I am now, but there was definitely a lot at the apiary when I was there last week. So goldenrod is still out, but I think that's fading away. And there's been a lot of things in the air lately that have been destroying my sinuses. But at this time of year, you can probably start thinking about getting those entrances reduced. Uh, some people leave them open year-round. 
Uh, some people will go down to about like that, you know, if you buy your entrance reducers, like the two and a half, two and three quarter, three inch, whatever it is, entrance. And then some people go all the way down to like the three quarter inch, one inch entrance. That's kind of what I usually do is that smaller one to overwinter. That's just kind of my preference. Uh, I've done it all ways, and I feel like, you know, there's this, this constant um, balancing act that you have to try to perform here with getting in enough cool air to keep condensation down, but not so much cool air that they have to use excessive amounts of stored honey in order to keep themselves warm. So we're going to go ahead and uh, take a quick break, and we'll jump back in here and resume this topic Hey, everyone. Thank you for listening. I hope that you're enjoying the show and are finding the information to be useful and valuable. In order to help keep the lights on, we do need to take a quick commercial break. Thank you so very much for hanging in there, and I appreciate you. We will be right back. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. All right, everyone, welcome back, and thank you for staying with us today. As always, feel free to reach out if you have any questions or comments. I always enjoy hearing about your experiences, answering questions, and learning more about the challenges you're facing in different parts of the world. So please keep them coming. It's Jeff at beekeepingfornewbies.com. Now let's get back to the show on the Beekeeping for Newbies radio network. Okay, that's not a real thing, but I'm trying to make it sound more official, so just play along, all right? Thanks a lot. Okay, so getting back to uh, you know some of these things that, that we expect here in the you know late summer, early fall, I mentioned you about the humidity and temperature, particularly condensation, I guess is the best word for it inside the hive. You know, I I say this all the time. I've said it in the podcast. I've said it in emails to folks, you know, wet bees are dead bees. And, you know, my first couple of years when I was losing bees, I was losing them because too much moisture was building up on the top of the inside of the hive and was dripping down on the bees and it was killing them. So at this time of year, you know, getting that entrance, Uh, set to a point where you are allowing some cool air and you definitely don't want to seal that thing up. It's kind of a common misconception. You don't want to seal the colony up completely. You want to give it some air and some ventilation. Think about it just like it is in the wild. You know, you have a, a, a colony of bees that have swarmed. They find a tree. That tree might have a hole in it or even a big opening that could be several inches uh, in either vertically or, or horizontally. Usually those, those splits in the trees kind of tend to go vertically, but sometimes the holes can just be maybe a four or five inch diameter hole. Whatever it is, the space is quite often, you know, larger than you would think that they would prefer. If the, if the entrance is too big, they will put propolis. They'll stack it up and they'll make a little wall. Now, they, they may not have enough time at this time of year. If you if you went from, let's say, a one-inch opening to completely open, they, they probably can't do a lot about that. But if there's too much air coming through, they will build a little bit of a wall there by the entrance to slow the, the, you know, the air from coming in as quickly. But you definitely want air circulating and coming in and, and helping to minimize that condensation. 
So I'm trying to think of what other things you'd expect to see. Like I mentioned before, they're going to get a tendency to become more agitated. You're definitely going to see a reduction. There is a buildup that tends to happen in, in the uh, in the fall, where as that fall flow kicks in and they're bringing in more nectar, you, you'll see an increase in the population. The queen should be a lot more active, laying eggs. Then it tapers off and drops off. You'll see the last of the nectar starting to, to get you know cured and, and ultimately capped. And that's pretty much the changes that you're going to see. Like I said, temperament can be a little bit, a little touchy at this time of year. And I mentioned about, I think we talked about robbing already, sometimes being a challenge at this time of year. Another thing you can expect to see is the drones are going to get kicked out, right? You, you notice like in the, in the spring and in the summer, the drones are all over the place, hanging out like a bunch of lazy bums and just eating food and laying on the couch and just waiting for a virgin queen to show up somewhere. If, if they're in the colony, they're, they're going to get kicked out. So you know, they're not overwintering drones. So you, you'll see them get kicked out at some point in time. They're, they're just going to be homeless on the ground until they die. Okay, next question is not seasonally related here, but it says that, you know, uh, it was a question around bees randomly getting really, really active, you know, almost looking like they're going to swarm, and then they settle down, you know, and someone's like, hey, you know, what is this? So it could be a number of things. It could actually be a swarm. It could be the bees preparing to swarm. But mo- most of the time what I've seen happen is occasionally I've seen where it's a little bit cooler on a day, but then the sun kind of shows up and it shines right on the entrance. And I've seen that stimulate some activity a little bit. Not to the level, though, that, that I'm thinking in my mind. Specifically, what I think is happening is if you see a scenario where there's just a lot of activity, bees are coming in and out, in and out, a lot of times what happens is they've come across a food source of some sort. They come back and they're telling their friends like, hey, you got to go over here at some of the best stuff in the area. You're not going to believe it. And then they all start getting together and, and going. And, they, and whatever that food source is, they just go nuts. And to kind of prove that that's the case, I've had it in, in periods of dearth where there's nothing, right? And the bees are just kind of hanging out and they're you know, wandering around the entrance and just kind of killing time. And then I'll go fill a um, one of my open feeders, and then about an hour later, the colonies are going nuts, right? They found that new food source, and they're just going crazy to get it. So y- you'll get a feel for, you know, what's good activity and what's bad activity. The difference, I would say, is that if it's a swarm kind of event, everybody's leaving, right? So, like, you look at the entrance, and they are all pouring out. And if it's a food event, you have them all coming in and going out. So it's lots of activity going both ways. If it's a robbing event, you see a lot of activity, and then there's a lot of fighting and wrestling and attacking going on. So the time of year is really kind of what's going to dictate things. In the spring, when you see those big activity events, it could be a food source, but probably a swarm. In the dearth I was mentioning, that's definitely a new food source been discovered. They're going after that. In the fall, again, be mindful of the possibility of there being you know, some type of a robbing event or um, some other type of intruder. Just pay attention to what's going on right in front of the colony, right in front of the hive. If, like I said, if they're rolling around and wrestling with other bees, you got a robbing event, reduce the entrance or even close the entrance if you need to. So the question I got was, uh, why would I settle on and only use four or five frame nukes. This is an email from David. So why would I only use four or five frame nukes? 
so the first thing I would say with this is nukes have a, a very, I would say, distinct place in beekeeping, in colony, um, I would say more like apiary management. When you look at a larger colony, um, or I'm sorry, a larger apiary, what you tend to do is you kind of create your own self-sufficient, self-sustaining ecosystem where you have production colonies that are producing, you know, honey. You have nucleus colonies that are basically just factories. They're brood factories. They just kind of crank out frames of brood. And then you have breeder breeder colonies, and all they do is they make queen cells and or, or care for developing queen cells. So that's sort of where the nuke fits in the bigger apiary sustainable sort of uh, approach. Now, as a individual like hobbyist beekeeper, talking about hardware, and you know why would I maybe maybe um, standardize on four or five frame nukes as sort of my foundation? What I really really like about them is if you're on that four frame nuke, that's where you can kind of do what I've talked about for a long time with those divided colonies where you take a a 10 frame deep put a divider board in the middle four frames on each side and then you stack four frame nukes on each side of that and then you have an entrance on one side an entrance on the other side and you're running two colonies in the footprint of a single and then you can of course stack your four frames on top of that that's a great overwintering configuration gives you a chance to have the two colonies sharing one big cluster in the middle of that entire hive structure they overwinter better they just do better overall like that but when you're having uh, but when you have those four or five frame nukes let's say example of five frame nukes i've run five frame nukes as production colonies for a long time and they're great because they sort of serve as like a hybrid colony for me they produce massive amounts of brood they explode in size very quickly they love that vertical expansion They really like having that tree-like vertical movement. So they fill out, they draw out the frames, they move up. They draw out the frames, they move up. And I've run five-frame colonies, you know, four high. And I could definitely go higher if I wanted to. It just wasn't right for the area where I had them placed. But you could definitely settle on nukes. But what I would say is have a strategy in mind. Say, well, this is what I'm doing today. This is what I'm hoping to get from my beekeeping hobby or future career, depending on where you are. This is my plans over the next five years. And then just buy hardware or make your own hardware that matches up with what your plans are going to be. And I say this just to minimize your expense. Like if you have a surplus of cash, you have plenty of disposable income or money laying around, get a whole bunch of different things. Get some four frames, five frames. I I even have some two frame nukes. Those are great. And you can just grab a frame you can literally just grab a frame out of a colony that you know with some young larva and drop it in a two-frame nuke, throw an empty frame of wax foundation in it, take another frame and shake some nurse bees onto it, and then they'll make a new queen and have another colony ready to, ready to swarm in a few weeks. And once that new queen is mated and comes back, that thing will swarm within two weeks. I mean, it's, it's unreal how quick that those things will explode. But I've got two-frame, let's see, I've got two, three, four, five-frame nukes. And I use them all different ways for different things. But experiment, play around, see what fits for your style and and your income and your disposable income, and then go with that. But nukes are so easy to use, even when you're stacking them up in that configuration that I mentioned with that kind of double deep foundational, you know, first hive body. Inspections are so easy. You just walk up, you grab 
the entire nuke. You lift it up, you can look at the bottom, you can see if there are any queen cells, you can see if there's brood in there, you can see if there's um, capped honey anywhere. It's just really, really easy to inspect. They're really easy to move around. You know, when I was younger, even before I started beekeeping, it wouldn't have been an issue to just grab these 30, 40, 50 pound high bodies and toss them around and move them. I'm, I'm getting older, man. I'm not, I'm not looking to, to do that over and over and over again. You know, that's where most people that are keeping bees, you know, they've got a system in place that involves some kind of equipment. You know, I mentioned Ian Stepler a lot, but again, check him out on YouTube, Stepler Farms. But he's got this great piece of equipment that has a boom that comes off a truck and it slides down underneath of the pallet that's underneath of his hives. He pushes a button, lifts up the colonies and stacks them up. That's great. That's perfect. Um, I've got equipment that I use to kind of do the same thing. I'm trying to get it to where it's, you know, four colonies per pallet with brackets that keep them mounted in place. And, you know, you have to work within your budget and within your means, but finding some way, some methodology and approach that allows you to do what's right for any physical limitations you might have. And again, your future plans, et cetera. And uh, moving on to the next thing on the list here, we have switching the deeps in the summertime. If you're on like a two deep kind of a setup, so you have like, let's say you're, it doesn't matter if it's eight frame or 10 frame, but we'll just say it's two 10 frame deeps that you're using as your brood chamber. What will happen is over time that, you know, they'll draw the queen and the, I'm sorry, the workers will draw out that lower section of comb. They'll work their way up. They'll start drawing up the top section. After the queen lays up that whole first hive body, that first deep, she'll move up and start laying up the next one. It's not uncommon for her to kind of move up and, and want to stay up higher. And then as you get into like this time of year, maybe like summer, early fall, you'll notice that maybe the bottom deep is completely empty. All the brood is in the middle deep. Then maybe you have a queen excluder and one or two honey supers above that. And you, you're, you're kind of messed up because you're like, I don't understand why there's honey up top, honey below that. There's a whole deep full of brood. And then there's a deep with nothing in it. Some people at that point in time, what like what I've done several times, particularly going into the winter, is I take the extra deep that has nothing in it. I just take it off. So I pull it off completely. I leave the one deep behind that has brood in it and then leave my honey supers on top of that, and that's it. There's no sense in putting more empty space in there that they have to heat, right? The less space they have to heat, the more efficient they can be. But a lot of people will go ahead and flip them right there. If there's plenty of time left in the season, they'll go ahead and flip them right there, let her finish laying out the bottom, let her move up and do some more up top. In general, I'm going to tell you, the bees are going to put things where they best feel that they should be. So if you're going into the winter, you're getting into this time of year, and she has laid up with all new brood in that upper deep, and then you've got honey and everything above that, they probably don't want you messing with things right now. If you're going to mess with things, do it at a time of year when they can recover and they can fix it back the way they want it. But you do it now, you're, you're going to cause them to have to expend a lot of resources to get things back the way they want it. But like I said, I've, I've had a lot of good luck with taking out that one deep. And if it's, again, if they're not using it, or maybe there's like one frame of something in there, take it out. Don't, don't even leave it in there. But what a lot of people will, will do is they'll go ahead and they leave everything in place. And then in the spring, when they go in and they do that first, you know, big time inspection, they'll go ahead and flip them. They'll reverse them because that queen's already moved up. She's in the top of that second deep. She's all, you know, way up there in the top. They'll go ahead and reverse them, get it down, get her back down to the bottom again and start over. Not uncommon. Uh, like I said, some people do it. Some people don't. I, 
I will do it because I know that she generally has that tendency to move up. But like I mentioned before, I will pull the one out and then I kind of slide it in between the bottom deep and the honey supers when I start the next spring and everything's fine. All right, folks. Well, we are moving along here. We've gotten through about two thirds of the two thirds of the notes here. And I don't even think, yeah, we're not going to be able to get, we're not going to be able to squeeze it in. So we're going to wrap this up here. We're going to go ahead and move on and prepare some more notes to get episode nine, B-Buzz episode nine going. I don't know if we're going to have enough to get that a full episode today. So we'll have to check that out. But one way or another, we're going to go ahead and, and wrap this episode up. As always, I appreciate everybody taking the time to listen. If you have any questions, shoot me an email, jeff at beekeepingfornewbees.com or more on the bees at protonmail.com. And uh, as always, be kind to one another, and uh, we'll talk to you later. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.